Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A court will probably conclude that criminal charges cannot be brought against a sitting president. Ultimately, Richard Nixon was not indicted. Instead, prosecutors opted to let the impeachment proceedings in Congress run their course. The bottom line legal issue is the president is not above the law. Mm -hmm. uh, he is not King George. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who won't be making peace with North Korea after all, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Part of what we try to do on this show is focus attention on the real dangers Donald Trump presents, the actions he takes that threaten democracy and the rule of law, as opposed to just his routine dishonesty, mismanagement, and incompetence. Well, one of the real alarms sounded, and I'm afraid a lot of people might have missed it, or failed to distinguish it as something really serious, among all the other outrage and chaos. It was the news that Trump has been trying to punish Jeff Bezos for the Washington Post's coverage of his administration. Here's what we know. The Washington Post itself reported at the end of last week that Trump has been pressing the U.S. Postmaster General, Megan Brennan, to double the rates that the post office charges Amazon to ship packages. And why? It's because Jeff Bezos, who founded Amazon, also owns the Washington Post, which has been doing a splendid job of what journalism has to do in the present crisis, expose the truth and hold the Trump administration accountable. Trump was in effect calling for a multi-billion dollar fine on one company assessed by interfering with a postal rate setting process that's designed to be free from this kind of political interference. Though they're entirely separate companies, Trump likes to refer to the paper as the Amazon Washington Post. He's been railing against it since the early days of his campaign. And with the post office, he thinks he has a lever to bend Bezos and thereby force the Post to go easy on him. Now, the pressure won't work. Journalists at the Washington Post would stand up to it even if Bezos wouldn't. And Bezos has made clear that he will. But Trump may have the power to exact punishment against Bezos. Although Amazon is hardly suffering in the marketplace, earlier reports about Trump going after the company drove Amazon stock down 7% at one point. Punishing independent media owners is something dictators do around the world. It's the strategy employed by Putin in Russia, Erdogan in Hungary, and Erdogan in Turkey. The last time it happened in this country was when Richard Nixon looked for ways to punish the owners of the New York Times and the Washington Post during Watergate and the Pentagon Papers case. Nixon didn't get as far as Donald Trump has already gone in pursuing retaliation against Bezos. So let's be clear. This is a grotesque abuse of power. It's an assault on the First Amendment. And there's a strong argument that it's an impeachable offense. It's also another sign of the utter degradation and moral collapse of the Republican Party that they won't stand up for one of the country's most important businessmen currently being blackmailed by the President of the United States. In a moment, I'll speak to Noah Feldman about whether you can indict a president. 
But first, Rudy Giuliani was on Fox earlier this month talking about what he might do if Robert Mueller goes after Ivanka Trump. Ivanka Trump? I think I would uh, get on get on my uh, charger and go right into the right into their offices with a lance if they go after Ivanka. But what will Mueller and Rosenstein do if Giuliani comes at them on his charger with his lance? Noble Sir Roderick of Rosenstein, look out upon the parapet. A rider approaches. Ah, uh, yes, I do see it, Sir Robert of Mueller. If I'm not mistaken. That is Sir Giuliani. Indeed, Sir Rudolph of Giuliani, the most fearsome knight in the land. He has drawn his lance. Wherefore would he come to us in this fashion? Oh, Sir Robert of Muller, I did warn you that this would happen. For he did tell us explicitly on that Duke Hannity's program. He did claim that if you were to go after that Princess Ivanka, that he would mount his steed and storm this very castle. Oh, woe that I did not listen to these warnings, for no knight is as fearsome as Sir Rudolph of Giuliani. Look e'en now as he stalks the castle walls. Oh, here, as he doth ride his horse, somehow he doth ride it backwards, and yet he still doth make the path that he doth intend. Almost as if he's doing it with accident, and yet... I fear that I have subpoenaed the girl too soon. He shall bring down our castle single-handedly. No knight is more fearsome. Certainly not you. Woe, woe that we did take this course of action. Let all knights heed our warning. If the Lady Ivanka is subpoenaed, then I fear we shall lose our heads in this. Oh, he doth hold his lance from the very tip. If he thinks it's holding it right, he's just banging against the wall with it. Oh, but it must be some sort of strategy. It's all planned out. Nothing is by accident with Sir Rudolph of Giuliani. We can't hold his strategy against him. It's his first day. Kind of. Alas, it may take Sir Rudolph of Giuliani several days to gain basic knowledge about his client. But then when he does, he shall be most feared. Yes, we should hide our heads in shame, for we shall be conquered this day by the bravest knight of all. That sketch was improvised here in our Brooklyn studio by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. You can catch Steve and Asher and Kate James at our live show next week at the Bell House in Brooklyn. There may be a few tickets left. It's Wednesday at 7 o'clock, and we'll also be joined by Michael Avenatti. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Returning to the program and joining me in the studio today is Noah Feldman. He's a professor at Harvard Law School and the author of the biography, The Three Lives of James Madison, which I heartily recommend to any Trumpcast listeners who haven't read it yet. Hi, Noah. 
Hi, Jacob. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you in town because there's a lot to talk about today. I mainly want to talk about this question of possible prosecution of the president, which you wrote about in the new issue of the New York Review of Books. But first, I want to ask you about some news, which is a federal judge ruled that the president cannot block people on Twitter, that it's viewpoint discrimination and following the president is protected by the First Amendment. What do you think? It's a crazy decision. And it's crazy for two reasons. The first is the idea that the president actually controls what happens on Twitter in what the judge called, quote, the interactive space of his Twitter account, close quote, doesn't make any sense because the president doesn't in fact control Twitter. Twitter controls Twitter. And never before has any court held that in some space that the government doesn't actually control, there's nevertheless a fundamental free speech right. So what the court calls forum analysis, namely asking, is this a space where the government, which the government controls, where the government allows speech? The court just made up the law. The court just said, well, we think that even though Twitter controls Twitter, because an individual on Twitter gets to say who can follow him, that amounts to the creation of a public space within Twitter. And if you want to see why that in practice makes little sense, think about the fact that Twitter itself blocks users all the time. And now imagine that I want to have access to this government forum. But I've been thrown off of Twitter. Let's say I failed to follow the terms of service. So now I come to Twitter, to a court, and I say, wait a minute, a court has said that this is public space. So you got to let me on. And Twitter says, well, no, we don't. We're allowed to block you. We have a free speech right to block you because we control what happens on Twitter. So what the court has basically done is they've created overlapping spheres of responsibility on Twitter in which Twitter's not totally in charge, the president is not totally in charge, and the First Amendment applies. So it's new law, it's a big deal, but it's wrong. But that's a very Twitter-centric view, isn't it, Noah? Because what's, yes, the First Amendment doesn't apply to Twitter. It's, it's, a private, it's a private forum, and they can decide who participates and who doesn't, and they can be as arbitrary as they want, although Twitter has been pretty good about respecting free speech uh, as an obligation, if not a legal one. But the president is making statements in this forum. How can he say some citizens of the country, based on what I think about them, aren't allowed to see my statements? Well, the court actually didn't address that aspect. The court didn't say that the president can only make his statements where people can hear them. Think about the White House or the press room in the White House. The president can say whatever he wants in the White House. He doesn't have to invite in the entire public. And often he doesn't. He well, can... he can't discriminate among reporters based on viewpoint. He can't say, I'm only going to let five. I mean, he's, he's tended towards this direction a little bit. But wouldn't you agree that it would be a constitutional infringement if the president said, I'm only going to let Sinclair and Fox News cover my press conferences? The New York Times and The Washington Post aren't invited. In the press room, that's probably true. But it's not true in the Oval Office. If the president wants to just call in the reporters that he likes or give leaks or scoops to the people that he cares about, he can do that. So it's not the case that any time the president speaks, everyone should have equal access to that space. In any case, the court didn't say that. The court restricted its holding only to what it called this interactive space, which is your capacity to do a reply to and then to comment on replies or retweets of the president. They restricted their holding to that alone in an attempt, I think, to make it less extreme. And they admitted that when the government is talking itself, when Trump is talking, that that is not an area that's governed by free speech. That's what's called government speech. It's different than free speech. Huh. Well, this is Law Professors Week on, on Trumpcast. Hmm. We had uh, yesterday, I spoke to Rebecca Royfe, who teaches at New York Law School. I think you might know her. I do. She's great. Um, and uh, she, uh, she did this interesting piece, very well-timed, arguing essentially that 
it's illegal for the president to order prosecution. And this is relevant, obviously, of following his tweets over the weekend, which he can decide who sees them and who doesn't, according to you, mm-hmm. uh, when he demanded an investigation mm-hmm. into this allegation that, that, that there was an informant. Well, there was an informant, but the, yeah. that, that, that an informant was assigned in some way to, to spy on, on his campaign. She says the president can't do that legally. What, what do you think of that argument? It's an intriguing idea. And it's a very dense article with a lot of good historical material in it. It deserves a deeper read than I've been able to give it. That said, what I don't see in her argument is some explicit law prohibiting the president from actually ordering an investigation or a prosecution. Instead, her argument seems to be something like the president hasn't done it. And because the president hasn't done it and Congress hasn't said that the president can do it, that therefore the president can't do it. And, you know, with due respect to my own profession, I'm a law professor, too. There's something a little law professory about that argument from silence. You know, usually if something's against the law, it means there's a written law that says you can't do this, either in the Constitution or in a statute. And there is no there's definitely no such written law in this case. I mean, we previously had presidents who who uh, had paid more deference to norms and traditions and the way things uh, had historically worked. And when you have a president who is openly defying that, it raises all these questions about the limits on his authority because he will do and has done things that other presidents in our experience have not tried to do and wouldn't wouldn't defend doing. And this brings us to your article in the New York Review of Books, this issue where you address the question of whether a sitting president can be criminally indicted. Now, we looked at some of these questions in reference to impeachment. We did a piece Mm -hmm. together almost a year ago, and I think you changed your mind a little bit, um, at least on part of this question, uh, because I think then you were closer to the view that a president, that the only way to prosecute a president was impeachment. That was the constitutional mechanism. Mm -hmm. And that a sitting president couldn't be criminally indicted. As I read your new piece, you think that under certain circumstances, a president can be, maybe should be indicted. Well, it turns on a kind of tricky thing, which is imagine a scenario where the president's crimes are not connected to his office. So you and I said in that piece, and I still believe this, I think we were right about this part, (laughs) that if the president doesn't commit a high crime and misdemeanor, that is to say a crime that's connected to his office, but just an ordinary everyday crime. And let's imagine it's a crime from before he was president. You know, imagine Donald Trump was laundering money or something like that in the the days before he became president. There's a strong argument that that isn't an impeachable offense. Right. But what if we know that the president has essentially committed a substantial felony? Let's imagine he shot someone on Fifth Avenue, to use an example that he invented himself in in his campaign. It seems to me totally intolerable that the president couldn't be impeached for that. And we agree that he couldn't be impeached because it has nothing to do with his oath of office. But at the same time, he would remain in office as president when everybody knew, let's say we had a videotape of it, that he was a murderer. That doesn't seem to me consistent with the rule of law. So the the sort of tweak that I would put on our argument is that you might be able to prosecute the president. You ought to be able to prosecute the president if he's committed an ordinary crime, an unimpeachable crime that's nevertheless so blatant, so clear and so bad that it would make a mockery of the rule of law if he could just stay president while this crime hung over his head. So you actually have two related problems that are slightly different, ordinary crimes and prior crimes. Mm-hmm. 
neither of which is arguably, but I think in our view back then, covered by impeachment. Right. Impeachment is designed for abuse of office. That's what, That's what, what high said, crimes and, and misdemeanors. And we're both sticking to it. Right. So, but you have two other things. You have th- things that don't fit in that category. Right. Things that were maybe very bad that he did before he mm-hmm. was in office. Yeah, mm-hmm. money laundering, shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, not paying his taxes could be all sorts of things. And you have the question of, well, what if he's committed some ordinary crimes unrelated to his office? In, in his office. It's true. Those are distinct questions. The To me, the case where I really would want to see him prosecuted is where it's a crime from before that is also an ordinary crime. I and mean, by definition, any crime from before is an ordinary crime. You know, with respect to while he's in office, some crimes like shooting someone on Fifth Avenue probably still should be prosecutable. Now, what would happen in reality? In reality, if the president shot someone on Fifth Avenue, I would like to think, I haven't given up all faith in our system, <laughs> I would like to think that he would be impeached for that. You and I might raise our hands and go to Congress and try to testify and say, you can't impeach him for this, but everyone would laugh at us right. and they'd impeach him anyway. So if that happened, then I'm not so worried about prosecuting him. Get him out of office. I mean, it's always preferable to impeach him and remove him before prosecuting him. That's definitely the preferred course of action, no matter what. Even if it's something impeachment wasn't designed to cover. I mean, if it's something that impeachment wasn't designed to cover, then I actually think that the technically correct thing to do is to prosecute him for it. But I am also not so self-important as to believe that people would accept in Congress our view of what people should be impeached for. Yeah. You know, but you could imagine a hard case where, you know, the president is named as an unindicted co-conspirator and his defenders just don't want to remove him from office, even though there's very substantial evidence that says he's committed a crime. And under those circumstances, I am now, and this is a change from where I was before, I'm open to the idea that he could be prosecuted. Now, let me add one, one technical twist to this. Under current Department of Justice regulations, they can't prosecute him because current Department of Justice regulations actually explicitly say, they date back to the Clinton administration, that the president can't be prosecuted while he's in office. What I'm saying is the DOJ should revise those regulations under those circumstances or try to find some way around them. And Robert Mueller uh, told uh, Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, that he won't indict the president. He won't bring a criminal indictment against the president. Can't or won't? Well, first of all, so says Rudy Giuliani. We weren't in the room and there's no confirmation. But it does make sense that Mueller would feel bound by the DOJ guidance. So I think what he'd probably say is, at present, I feel bound by that guidance, absent some strong legal opinion to the contrary. You know, in an emergency, things might, in fact, be different. It's noteworthy that uh, both during the Watergate hearings and during the Whitewater uh, process, the, the impeachment process that followed from that, the special counsel in each case, the independent counsel in the second case, got an opinion, a formal opinion, contradicting the DOJ judgment and saying that the president could be prosecuted. So Ken Starr, you know, solicited and got a document that said that. He never had to use it and he kept it in, in abeyance. And Leon Jaworski during Watergate also didn't have to use it, but he kept it in abeyance. Yeah, I mean, opinion on this question tends to line up with interest, right? People investigating and possibly prosecuting a president end up defending the view that a president can be prosecuted, and people defending the presidency and the president make the argument that you can't. Correct. And that raises a further technical question, which is imagine that someone who's not an independent prosecutor, so someone like Mueller or like Leon Jaworski, tried to go into court and file a charge it would have to be script, have to be framed as the United States against Donald Trump. And then the head of the Department of Justice or Donald Trump orders that charge to be removed and threatens to fire the person otherwise. Presumably, a court would listen to the president and retract the charge. It might be a big political mess, 
but it's hard to picture. I mean, this is where uh, Professor Rebecca Royfi's opinion is relevant, but it's hard to imagine at this point a court saying, you know what, the Department of Justice can give that order and the president can't countermand it. I mean, all of these scenarios which we're now playing with go directly to constitutional crisis. Do not pass go. I yep. mean, you're, you know, and and there's increasingly a feeling that one way or the other we're going to get there. Now, one scenario, and you sort of alluded to this a moment ago, is that it's Congress's responsibility to act, but Congress doesn't act. And so prosecutors at various levels at the Justice Department, the Southern District of New York, and potentially even the New York Attorney General then have the question of, well, what do we do? Congress should impeach him. Congress has playing out the scenario is not moving to impeach mm-hmm. him, is not acting on yep. it, does that then confer some obligation or right upon us to bring a criminal indictment where it wouldn't be the first choice or possibly even allowed constitutionally? Yeah, exactly. And the first thing that I think any good prosecutor would do is indict somebody else and name him as an unindicted co-conspirator, making it really clear, laying out the evidence as much as possible, showing the world that the president is actually guilty of this felony. You can sort of do almost a trial by proxy. You know, you put the associate on trial and you make that associate prove among and you prove a trial, among other things, the close connection to the president. So you could go pretty far down the road without actually indicting the president of making it really clear that a jury will find that the president is guilty. Then you use that pressure to try and drive something like a resignation, which is a very tricky thing to do. But it's not impossible that that could work, especially the threat that the president might think, well, I'm not charged now, but the minute I step down. I will be charged would be a very strong incentive for the president to potentially tell his vice president more or less what we presume Nixon told Ford, either implicitly or explicitly. Namely, I'm going to quit now. You're going to be president. And in 30 seconds, I want you to immediately pardon me so that I can't be indicted. So I think a prosecutor could try to bring about that kind of a result. There is one more quirk to this. You mentioned the New York state prosecutors. Now, technically, it's a separate question whether a state can charge the president than whether the federal government can charge the president. And there's arguments on both sides about whether it's easier or harder. On the one hand, it's easier for a state person to charge the president because that person doesn't work for the president. So you don't get that weird contradiction where the president says, don't charge me. Right. He can't can't fire the New York attorney general. Exactly. Only the New York attorney general can get the New York attorney general fired. Exactly. (laughs) And as we know, that has happened frequently. (laughs) Um, And for always for entertaining reasons, although serious, I suppose, in in the most recent instance. So- That's the argument that says better the New York attorney general than the U.S. attorney general. But on the other hand is the argument that if you really think any one of 50 state attorneys general should have the power to freeze up the entire presidency by charging the president with a crime, that's a little worrisome. You know, it seems pretty seriously risky from the standpoint also of federalism. You know, the federal government is superior to the states with respect to a lot of things. And so if a state could basically choose to indict the president on a criminal charge, even if it's a frivolous criminal criminal charge, and make the president defend himself, that could be very bad news. I mean, imagine that Barack Obama was charged with a crime by some reckless, on-the-make, you know, conservative, borderline crazy attorney general. What's in his name state. in Oklahoma? Yeah. So you get an environment like that. That's pretty bad for the federal system of government. And so that's the argument that says the state should stay out of this, at least until the presidency is over. Now, final, final, final twist of the knife or turn of the screw. Imagine that the president wants to, doesn't want to resign, but he feels he has to resign because he needs to be pardoned. That's actually a good piece of leverage for the federal prosecutors to use, right? They create a circumstance where it's clear that the president will be indicted the minute he steps down, and that puts pressure on him to step down in exchange for a pardon. 
But right? you've, you've but, just. But threw- now, so here's the punchline. Yeah. But here's the here's the, the bad part. The bad part is they can't. That threat won't work if the president thinks he's still going to be prosecuted by New York. So then the federal prosecutor will lose his leverage to force the president to resign if the New York attorney general can step in and prosecute the president, even if he's pardoned. And that actually has been keeping me up nights <laughs> because that's a real worry. And no one would deny that that's lawful because once he's no longer in office, he's just an ordinary citizen and New York can charge him. So there is there is this kind of slight downside risk, the idea that the state attorney general could act. Namely, it removes the president's incentive to resign in order to be pardoned. Well, you've sort of read this corrupt pardon deal making into the, you know, that you've created a constitutional mechanism around this. But in fact, well, for to be exact- fair, Gerald Ford did that, not me. <laughs> That's the precedent we're referring to here. But couldn't it work just the opposite way, especially in light of what you just said about about state prosecution? That is, the president has a strong incentive to stay in office yes. because as soon as he leaves office, he, he can be prosecuted. Charged. Totally agree. And that is, in fact, also a perverse result. You don't want a situation where a president who, you know, maybe not this president, but some president who feels so ashamed of his conduct that he feels he should resign, but he can't resign because he'll be criminally charged immediately. You want to avoid that. Scenario. I mean, that's the, you know, the dictator scenario where you, you st- stay in as soon as you stay in office, you're going to be you're going to be prosecuted or killed. So you can never leave office. Yep. You're there. You yeah. know, that's the that's, that's the president Augusto, for life. That's scenario. Augusto Pinochet and, or where I mean, at least Pinochet was able to negotiate a deal that he would be a senator for life and therefore immune from prosecution permanently. You know, you can't do that in the U.S. We don't have an option like that. I mean, society's transitioning from autocracy to democracy sometimes make that deal where we'll the dictator leaves, we'll agree not to prosecute him in exchange for him letting us have a democracy. Correct. But we don't even have a mechanism for that to happen. I mean, I suppose the only mechanism there would be that the governors of all 50 states got together and each agreed to pardon the president for any crimes he might have committed in exchange for his resigning. You can sort of imagine this convention of 50 governors all getting together. It's not a scenario that's likely to happen in reality. That's the only way that we could pull that off if we wanted to do a deal like that in the U.S. I mean, we, one of the things we have to remember here is that whatever policy we create around Trump is going to be available for normal times when normal, assuming normal times return someday. Um, I mean, one thing that happened in the Clinton years was a change in the president about uh, the change in the precedent against civil suits against the uh, against the president proceeding. The Supreme Court ruled in the Paula Jones case that her civil suit could continue. And I think the previous understanding among most constitutional interpreters had been hadn't it that that it had to wait till he left office. Well, it was an unresolved question, but I think a lot of people expected that. So you're right that that president was created. But, you know, there's another important president that came out of the Clinton experience, and that is that even a president who's been impeached and who's being accused of conduct that amounts to a federal crime, in his case, you know, lying under oath, will still tough it out and refuse to step down and gamble that he'll never be criminally charged for it and get away with it. So, you know, when we think, as I do almost every day, oh, my goodness, you know, has Donald Trump no shame? You know, why doesn't he respond to this or that or the other thing by potentially stepping down? The precedent for him is Bill Clinton, who did tough it out. So, you know, once that precedent is yeah. out there, you can't put it back. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, we definitely had a, at least a few weeks or a few months when I, I didn't think there was any meaningful chance at all that, that Bill Clinton was going to serve out his second term. I mean, I thought he just would have to go, but he did. He toughed it out. And that changed our norms. Yeah. You know, I mean, it changed what you might say is, you know, for the founding fathers, they lived in an honor culture. I mean, think about it. This is a culture where Alexander Hamilton who was former secretary of the treasury, died in a duel with the sitting vice president of the United States. These are people who cared about their honor. So they assumed that if you were shamed, 
you would step down. Your honor was much more important than your job, and so the tool of honor was a more effective check on public officials than anything in the Constitution had to be. But post-Clinton, we do not live in that world. You know, no one is going to say after Bill Clinton, well, my honor has been impugned, so I'm going to resign in disgrace. To the contrary, Clinton's view was something like, well, it may be dishonorable, but I'm still the president. This isn't a high crime because it was trivial, you know, and it wasn't wasn't connected to my office, which we could debate, but that's what he said at the time. I certainly believe at the time, although I don't believe it now. <laughs> and, you know, he got away with it, and that did change our norms. But that Paula Jones ruling by the Supreme Court left us in a weird place where a civil suit against the president can proceed, but it's not clear that any a criminal suit, which would be, in most cases, more important and more significant, could proceed. Exactly. Doesn't I mean, the one imply the other? Well, there is a strong view that the one implies the other, and that is, in fact, the view of the special prosecutors who've repeatedly tried to get opinions saying that you can prosecute. But there's a counter view, which is, in theory, it's not that big a deal to defend yourself against a civil suit. It can be very time-consuming, but it doesn't involve you, for example, potentially being jailed. Whereas in a criminal charge, the president, if the president can be charged criminally, can the president be jailed, you know, on bail or without bail while awaiting, you know, trial? That essentially would mean that the president of the United States could be locked up. So there's a much deeper constitutional consequence of a criminal charge than there is for a civil charge. And that's the view on the other side. That's the view that says you can prosecute anyone in the federal government, but you can't prosecute the president. Uh, but no, your your guy, James Madison, uh, kind of left us hanging here, right? I mean, we're in territory where, you know, they, they explained what impeachment was. And they mm-hmm. left us a mechanism for that. Mm-hmm. But is this question of non-impeachable offenses just a, a, a gap in, in the constitutional structure? They didn't really leave us any instructions how to handle this situation? Yeah, it's a gap. But I think that the gap is a result of their strong and now obsolete belief in honor. You know, they just really thought that a president who found himself in this sort of a situation would certainly be obligated to resign because their background assumption was if you were caught in something profoundly dishonorable, the shame would mean you would have to take action. And that world is no longer with us. And so for sure, it's a it's a gap in, in the structure. It's a question they didn't answer. And we have to fill it in. My view is we have to think seriously about what is a democracy and what's the rule of law. And we can't be satisfied with any system that would leave us in an absurd position. For example, the position where the president is clearly a criminal, has clearly violated the law, and then is serving out a term and could even run for office and get reelected. That because makes that would mean the president was above the law. Exactly. And we know make, the president can't be above the law. We know fundamentally that the basic idea of a republic is that the president cannot be above the law. He's not the king. He's not the Roman emperor. And so that principle, I think, has to do a lot of the work for us. So how do you see this playing out? I mean, what's, you know, this changes, changes day by day, but we obviously it will depend on the evidence. But assume that Mueller has a case that the president committed some kind of offense. So I think a lot of it depends on whether Mueller's evidence turns out to be connected to the election or to something that Donald Trump did while in office or whether it's completely unrelated and has to do with his past conduct when he was just being plain old ordinary Donald Trump, not that Donald Trump was ever ordinary. In the first scenario, this absolutely has to go to Congress and they have to make a political decision as to whether there is grounds for impeachment. And I would defer to Congress's procedures on that. And if Congress doesn't impeach him, they don't think it's significant enough. So be it. You know, that's the way the game is is played. It's up to them to up to Congress to act. I and think if Congress that, doesn't act. That was the shot. Yes. Yeah. If it's a crime, a clear crime, not not a maybe, but a very powerful piece of evidence, which could be proven in court, not with respect to the president, but with respect to, say, I don't know, Michael Cohen or somebody else who's shown to be a, a co-conspirator who does get indicted, does go to trial or does plead guilty 
then under those circumstances, I think there will be a move to impeach him. It may or may not succeed. And if there is no success with respect to impeachment, say partly because people say publicly, well, this was before he was president and it doesn't matter, then I do think it's time for the Department of Justice to seriously re-examine its policy of not prosecuting and to think very, very seriously about a prosecution being brought. And that could come, by the way, not from Mueller, but it could come, for example, from the Southern District of New York, where the prosecutors are career prosecutors subject to civil service protections. The president can't fire them. That investigation is up and running and doing its own thing. And if the president ordered them to stop that investigation, they might well ignore him on the grounds that, you know, that's an illegal order that they don't have to take. They don't have to take. I've been speaking to Noah Feldman. He wrote in the New York Review of Books about the question of whether a sitting president can be criminally indicted. Noah, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jacob. Fun as always. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Special thanks to Steve Waltian and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper for today's improv sketch. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. So Rudolph was gone from these parts for many a time. Many a time. One might even think that his current adventures are just some sort of desperate plea to be relevant once again. And yet we know better, for he is the most brilliant knight. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.